The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekela. Now it happened in the month, month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Nehemiah's prayer. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you, you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the words that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. One other thing I mentioned in Friday's email is before the children head out to Story Keepers, I'm going to invite them to come up to the front so I can pray with you before you head out. So any of the Story Keepers children, if you can come up, join me here. Don't be shy. Guys, have a seat. See you all today. Let's see here. All right, so let's let's do our little uh, prayer thing where we put our hands in the air, put our hands in the air, and then oh, all right, and we're gonna bring our hands down past our eyes and close our eyes and bow our heads and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us all to church today, and the opportunity to be with one another to help one another love you better and learn about you. We pray for the boys and girls as they head out to story keepers and to nursery. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, teach them well, be with Miss Tara as she shares with them about you and your love, and uh, may the kids have a great time today in story keepers and in church. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can head outside.
for your word. Thank you for uh, this part of the Bible that might be familiar to some, but not to others. We come expectantly because all your word is written for our benefit. We long to understand this better and apply it to our lives so that it will make a difference uh, for each of us today and this week. All of us come with different uh, burdens this morning, different concerns, different joys, different understandings of you, different places in, in our journeys of faith. But you are the God who, through every part of the Bible, speaks into each of our lives so that we indeed would know the unknowable love of God. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As far as I can tell, uh, while Hollywood has produced films about some of the characters and uh, books of the Bible, it has never thought to tackle the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And that's perhaps a little surprising, because as one commentator put it, uh, with more than half of the book of Nehemiah being essentially a memoir of Nehemiah, punctuated with frank comments and asides, uh, Nehemiah is actually one of the liveliest pieces of writing in the Bible. Hollywood did make a movie of Nehemiah. I very much doubt they would ask me to direct it, but if they did, I'm pretty sure that I'd start the film in a sort of sinister silence, apart from perhaps the occasional eerie sound of wind in the background. The scene, the scene would be filled, screen would be filled with scenes of a city, or what once looked like a city, because it doesn't look much like a city now. It's desolate. Its walls have broken down. Gates of the city are little more than piles of firewood. Does appear to be a temple in the city, but that's the only significant building that we see. And as the camera pans in closer, it becomes apparent that there are essentially no homes here, no dwellings. Basically, no one seems to be living in this city. It's a place of no commercial development, no security. The camera finally does locate a few groups of people huddled together, but as the camera pans in even closer, we realize that they're just huddled together, weeping and grieving, because this is a place of desolation and despair and disappointment. Nehemiah 1 doesn't actually start in this place, but this is the place that is the backdrop and indeed the focus of everything that happens in this opening chapter of the book, and you might even say the entire book, because this place you may have guessed, is the city of Jerusalem. Specifically, it's the city of Jerusalem in 445 BC. In a few moments, we'll see the reason for why Jerusalem looked like this at this point in history. But before that, let me just say a word or two why we're going to be spending the next few months in the book of Nehemiah. We've titled this uh, sermon series, Rebuild, because it's a major theme of the book of Nehemiah, but also because I I believe that we're entering a season of rebuilding here at PCKS. I don't know about you, but it feels like we've had some significant transitions this year. Jeremy and his family have moved on to Union Presbyterian. Uh, They did in May. Tara and I, as you know, have been on sabbatical all summer. Added to that is a sense that I think we're still in some sort of pandemic hangover, where some of us who were more engaged in the life of the church before the pandemic more regular in our attendance on Sundays, aren't yet back at those levels. And even within specific ministries of our church, it seems to be a season of rebuilding. For example, just one, our youth group Roots, uh, which is now being led by Mackenzie 
Mohica, Eric DeShanes, Murphy and Chris Bolton is really in the process due to the changing demographics of the group of, of now refocusing on, on younger students this year. So we really are in this season of rebuilding. And what we're going to see today in Nehemiah 1 is pretty straightforward, but it's really quite essential for us to grasp and apply in such a season, and it's this. Here's today's sermon in a sentence. The prerequisite for all ministry rebuilding is prayer. I'm going to think about this by looking at Nehemiah's prayer that Becky read for us in chapter 1. Uh, and we're going to think about it just under two headings. First of all, the context of the prayer. That'll take up actually most of our time. And then secondly, the content of the prayer. Also that we might better understand that the prerequisite of all ministry rebuilding is prayer. So first, the context of the prayer. If, if uh, the movie on Nehemiah were to start with the scenes of desolation in the city of Jerusalem, after a few moments, the camera uh, would cut to Susa, the city of Susa, 900 miles west of Jerusalem, the location of the Persian king Artaxerxes' citadel, which also served as his winter residence, uh, this being in present-day Iran. However, it's not Artaxerxes' presence uh, that really interests us, or the reader, because the, what, who interests us is the narrator here, and the one who tells us quite dramatically at the end of the chapter, almost as a LinkedIn aside, here's my, here's my profile, he's the cupbearer of the king, namely he's Nehemiah. And in the opening verses, Nehemiah receives a visitor with, it turns out, some very bad news. Look at verses 1 to 3. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Nehemiah receives this visit from Hanani, who, who might have been his actual brother or just an advisor, the, the word used could have been both. Hanani rides up with several others in his entourage, surely weary from the very long journey, and is asked by Nehemiah for a report on how things are in Jerusalem. Now, a little background history here will help, I think, all of us. This period of Israel's history is probably best picked up about 140 years prior to Nehemiah's inquiry here, when in 586 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, destroyed Jerusalem, including the temple, and he took the people of Judah into exile. Now, it was not as if the people of Jerusalem had not been warned. God had told his people through the prophets that if they persisted in their disobedience, their sin, and their rebellion against God, judgment would happen. But guess what? They still persisted, and it did happen. However, God in his mercy promised that after their exile, he would restore his people. And so in 538 B.C., after the defeat of the Babylonians by the Persians, the then Persian king Cyrus decreed that all the Israelites could return to Jerusalem. And so at the beginning of the book of Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah are sort of companion books. They actually originally were in the Old Testament were just one book. At the beginning of Ezra, we read that 50,000 men, women, and children under the leadership of a man called Zerubbabel made the arduous journey back from exile in Babylon, Persia to Jerusalem. 
Zerubbabel's priority upon getting back to, to Jerusalem was to rebuild the temple so that worship could resume as soon as possible. And that rebuilding started. And then it stalls due to pressure from surrounding enemies. It only gets going again 15 years later. And the temple's finally completed with the encouragement of prophets like Zechariah, whom you may remember we spent some time with this past spring. Well, then in 458 BC, some 58 years later, Ezra the scribe leads a second wave of returnees from Persia to Jerusalem. And Ezra's purpose was to engage in the spiritual rebuilding of God's people, calling them to repentance from their sins. In addition, the second wave of, of returnees had sought to take on the next stage of rebuilding in the city. The temple was built, now the walls needed to be rebuilt. However, we read in Ezra 4 that various officials in the wider region there write a letter to King Artaxerxes. Remember, that's Nehemiah's king who he works for. And they express concern about this building progress in Jerusalem. They write that if the walls get rebuilt, well, the city's going to regain strength. If they regain strength, they'll probably stop paying you taxes. They'll rebel against the king. Well, guess what? Artaxerxes orders that the rebuilding of the walls should stop, and indeed, they are stopped by force and power. So that whatever had been built of the walls up to that point were destroyed, the gates are burned, and Jerusalem again is this place of great vulnerability. That's the report that Nehemiah gets from Hanani. Nehemiah had never at this point in his life been to Jerusalem. He'd been part of the exile. But he would have known about Ezra. He would have known about Ezra's efforts to bring about the reformation and restoration of Jerusalem. My guess is when he saw Hanani arrive, he was hoping for good news, that he, he knew the temple had been rebuilt, and now the second wave of returnees had, had gone back with Ezra. Ezra's in Jerusalem now teaching the Bible. Surely things were on an upswing, and instead he hears that the city is still abandoned. There is still no wall. And the people were therefore, in Hanani's words, in great trouble and shame. The city was in just a perilous situation as it had been for the previous 140 years. God's work had been paralyzed. God's people were demoralized. Now, it's not hard to imagine what Nehemiah's reaction to this devastating news would be. Look at verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. By the time markers that are given at the start of chapter 1 and the start of chapter 2, it becomes apparent that the reference here to the days of Nehemiah's weeping and mourning and fasting and praying covered the best part of four months. And why such a deep and prolonged reaction? It was because even though he had never been there, and even though he was a civil servant of high importance in the Persian king's palace, nothing mattered more to Nehemiah than the city of Jerusalem and its welfare. James Galway, the wonderful Irish flautist, once called the man with the golden flute by the New York Times, actually his, uh, his cousin was a good friend of my mother's, uh, is 82 years old now, uh, but when he was 38, he was involved in a near-fatal road accident, which he said forced him to evaluate what really mattered in his life. He wrote this, I decided that from now on I would play every concert, cut every CD, perform every TV program as though it were my last. 
I've come to understand that it is never possible to guess what might happen next and that the important thing is to make sure that every time I play the flute, my performance is as near perfection, full of true music as God intended, and that I shall not be remembered for a shoddy performance. It often takes a crisis, whether a car accident or something else, to force us to really weigh what's important in our lives. That crisis might concern our health, a bereavement, a personal tragedy, or something else, which God uses to confront us with the basic question, what is the most important thing in my life? I wonder how you would answer that question. What is the most important thing in your life? Nehemiah's crisis moment had come with this devastating news from Hanani. What was most important in Nehemiah's life? It was the welfare of Jerusalem. And it's here that we start to see what the book of Nehemiah really is all about. If you've ever heard a sermon series on Nehemiah, or even a one-off sermon on the book, I would hazard to guess that it came in the context of one or of two themes. Firstly, you might have heard a message on Nehemiah because the church you were attending at the time was in the midst of a capital improvement or a building campaign. Pastors who are doing building campaigns love Nehemiah. Or secondly, you heard a sermon series on the theme of leadership, because Nehemiah is presented as one of the consummate leaders of the Bible, this gifted strategist, and so on. And in some ways, I completely understand that that's where many preachers would go with this book. Because, you know, if you're a Christian, you have a conviction that the Bible is for us. The Bible is God's word that he intends for our benefit. Otherwise, we wouldn't bother reading it. English preacher Dick Lucas, however, has a helpful saying in this regard. He, he said, yes, of course, the Bible is for us, but it's not always immediately about us. It's for us, but it's not immediately always about us. That is, we have to be careful that we don't try to immediately insert ourselves into Nehemiah's situation and flatten out all the historical distinctives of the story such that we spiritualize Nehemiah and make him as much like us as possible. Because the Bible isn't primarily about wisdom for leaders or comfort for the afflicted or guidance for the perplexed. All those things, of course, can be found in the Bible. But as Kathy Keller, Tim Keller's wife, has written, they're like shiny pebbles that distract our attention from the great highway of the biblical story of redemption that runs from ruin to renewal. So here's perhaps a better approach to thinking about the book of Nehemiah to ask this. The first question that we would ask is, what's the role of this book? What's the role of this story in the grand story of the Bible? One of the helpful ways I've found to think about the overall grand story of the Bible is through four headings, creation, fall, redemption, renewal, or restoration. The observant amongst you will have noticed from our bulletin every Sunday that we endeavor to shape the service around those four headings as, as together through the service we rehearse the grand narrative of the Bible. So creation, God created the world, Genesis 1, creates this beautiful, perfect world. But you don't have to read too far until you get to Genesis 3, and you discover that Adam and Eve refuse to trust God and his promises. They disobey God, and the fall occurs. 
creation fall, then you discover that from the end of Genesis 3 on, God promises he's going to fix this. He's going to provide a way to forgive us for our sin. He's going to find a way to restore our relationship with him such that he will be our God and we will be his beloved people. And as we read on in the Bible, we discover that there will be a redemption and it will come through a redeemer whom we discover will be the promised Messiah, God's own son, Jesus Christ. So that everything from Genesis 3 on in the Old Testament really is just the setup for the coming of the Savior. And the Savior will come from a people that God has called to himself, the people of Israel. And God appoints Jerusalem to be the capital city of this nation of Israel. According to Deuteronomy 4, Jerusalem was to be the center point of a nation upon whom all the nations were to gaze and to marvel. It was to be the white-hot center of God's missional flame. But in the part of the story that Nehemiah finds himself, Jerusalem has been destroyed. Yes, the temple's been rebuilt. But without a secure wall to defend the city and her people from the surrounding powerful nations, there would be no permanent restoration of Israelite culture. The people would be assimilated into all the pagan surrounding cultures. The law and the word of God would be forgotten, all of which meant that there would be no more Israelite nation to bring forth God's promised Messiah, who was the key to our forgiveness and our redemption. For the Messiah to come required a rebuilt nation, a rebuilt city, a temple, priesthood, sacrifices, a place where the Messiah could grow up Jewish in order that he could be the true and ultimate Israel, the final temple, the ultimate high priest, the ultimate sacrifice. So you see, the return of the exiles and the rebuilding of Jerusalem was not just part of a a natural longing for a national homeland. They were key ingredients in God's redemptive plan for the world because the Messiah was to come out of the Israelite nation. But at this point, there really wasn't an Israelite nation anymore, and there was never going to be one unless this rebuilding took place. What was most important in Nehemiah's life? Nehemiah understood the grand redemptive plan of God, and so the most important thing in his life at this point was the welfare and therefore the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So how is it that we living in 2022 would start to apply this story to our lives? Because we don't live in the same time and predicament as Nehemiah. Jesus the Messiah has come, right? He's lived the life We should have lived a life of perfect obedience. He died the death we should have died, paying for our sins. He's risen from the dead. He's alive right now. He's present here. And he's ascended to heaven. But before he ascended to heaven, he announced that his kingdom was now going global. Its focus was no longer situated at just one small part of this world in the Middle East. His kingdom is now everywhere that his people are found on the face of this globe. But what is helpful to remind ourselves of here is that while the specifics were therefore different for Nehemiah, the principles were the same. Nehemiah lived several centuries before Jesus came, but from what we read here, we can see he was seeking to live out the command of Jesus to seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, Matthew 6, 33. 
Nehemiah knew the commandment, which Jesus quoted as the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 22, 37 to 39. Nehemiah lived over 2,000 years before the writing of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the, one of the catechisms of our denomination, but he would have said a hearty amen to the first question and answer of that catechism. What is the chief end of man? to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So here's the question for us. How can you and I discern if we're living by the same principles that Nehemiah was here? How do you know if you're seeking God's kingdom first, loving God with heart, soul, and mind, glorifying God and enjoying him forever? How do you discern whether the one who, according to the Bible, should be the most important one in your life, namely God, how do you know if he actually is? And Nehemiah's example here, I think, suggests that one way to get an answer to that question is to look to see what moves you more than anything else to weep and mourn and pray about. Some of you may have seen the new study out this week by the Pew Research Center in which they project that in 2070, those who profess to be Christians will likely make up less than half of the US population. They say that if you're trying to predict the future religious landscape in America, the question is not whether Christianity will decline, it's how fast and how far. And the main factors are not declining birth rates, they're not, it's not the presence of non-Christian immigrants. The main reason, the article says, is what they call switching. People who previously called themselves Christians deciding, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. I have to confess that I read the reports of this study this week more as an interesting sociological study of the religious American landscape than from the vantage point of a modern-day Nehemiah who weeps for the state of the church today where if we're honest, there is still great trouble and shame to use the words of Hannah and I. Do you mourn about these things to the Lord, about this kind of exodus from the church, and weep when you hear the latest scandals involving church leaders and denominations and Christian organizations that just bring dishonor and disrepute to God's name? You pray with tears, not just for your unbelieving children, which I know many of you do, but for unbelieving friends, unbelieving co-workers, that they would see the beauty and the glory and the majesty and the love of God and turn to him for forgiveness and fullness of life, knowing that if they don't turn, they'll spend a lost eternity separated from the Lord who made them for a relationship with himself. You move to intercede before Christ for the welfare of this church, and maybe particularly for those you know who have drifted away from the life of this church and they haven't found another church to attend. They're in the desert spiritually right now. And this isn't about the health and the viability of any one local church or a particular denomination. This is about praying that God will build and rebuild his church, his people, bringing people into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ such that their lives are transformed now and for eternity. 
You'll know what is most important thing in your life by what you weep over and pray for more than anything else. And for Nehemiah, at his time in history, in God's redemptive story, the most important thing was the welfare of Jerusalem, which translated to the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. He knows something has to be done, something will be done, and he will be the one to do it. And so he leaps into action and sits down to weep and pray for four months. Which moves us from the context of this prayer to, more briefly, the content of Nehemiah's prayer. Nehemiah takes a big problem to a big God, and he lays it out before him. Because in his mind, a human predicament constitutes a divine opportunity. Every time, human predicament, divine opportunity, and so he prays. Look with me at the different aspects of Nehemiah's prayer. Notice that he doesn't start with a petition, which is always what we're tempted to do first. As Derek Kidner writes in his commentary, this prayer postpones the cry for help, which could have otherwise have been faithless and self-pitying. Instead, this prayer, interestingly, just like the Lord's Prayer, ascends immediately to heaven to reflect on God and his character. Look at verse 5. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Nehemiah begins by gazing on God, how he is heavenly and great and sovereign and awesome. He's the God who keeps covenant. And here's that attribute we spent all that time on last Sunday. He's the God of hesed love, steadfast love. Incidentally, I heard from a reliable source, namely my wife, that when the children got to Story Keepers last Sunday, having participated in our responsive reading of Psalm 136, which if you were here last week, you'll remember every one of the 24 verses includes the refrain, and his steadfast love endures forever. Their reaction when they got to Story Keepers was to protest, that was so boring. (laughs) I was done with it after the first couple of times. I'm guessing the children might have articulated what some of us had been thinking too, but had not dared to say because, well, of course, this is God's word and you can't say those kind of things. And I thought, well, praise God that his steadfast love does not tire of us or get bored with us quite so quickly. But notice in Nehemiah's prayer to whom it is that God keeps his covenant of steadfast love. It's with those who love him and obey his commands. That is, Nehemiah knows that The experience of God's steadfast love is in the lives of those who who love him and are obedient. And that in turn then leads Nehemiah to his own soul searching, heart searching, and confession. Look at verses 6 to 7. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Nehemiah, again, is sort of following the model that Jesus puts into the Lord's Prayer so that before he gets to any petition, Nehemiah follows his adoration of God with confession. And rather than stressing the broken walls, his prayer lifts up the broken commandments. Notice that Nehemiah confesses both his own individual sin and the corporate sin of his people, and not just that of his contemporaries, but those, the sins of previous generations that had led to the exile. 
some reason you hear Christians argue today that we don't need to repent for the sins of our forefathers or pray corporate prayers of confession because, well, we weren't there. We didn't do it. Seems to come up particularly these days with regard to past sins of racial injustice, particularly within the church. And it seems to me Nehemiah would beg to differ with that perspective. He recognizes a responsibility to repent for sins that his ancestors did, even if he didn't personally do them himself. So he confesses not only his own sin, but the sin of his people because he knows he's part of that people too. And we need to think hard about how God calls us to do the same thing. So Nehemiah admits where God's people following their own devices and desires had led. It had led to exile. But in the second half of his prayer, Nehemiah draws on various passages from Deuteronomy as well as from 1 Kings 8 to make a strong petition to the Lord. Yes, Israel's following their own narrative had led to exile. But prompted by God's own promises, Nehemiah sees where connecting with God and his grand plan of redemption could lead, and that's restoration. And as you read his prayer, you realize it's completely based on the promises he knows from God's word that God has already made. He understands that all good prayer takes hold of God's promises and turns those promises into petitions and prays them back to God. And as such, Nehemiah had every reason to anticipate God's favor and mercy and grace in reply. Because here was a prayer that was grounded in God's word, grounded in the history of salvation, and in the conviction that God always keeps his promises and would not give up on his work of redemption. And so at the very end of his prayer, Nehemiah gets to his very specific request, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man that we'll pick up next week. I've wondered this week if Jesus had Nehemiah in the back of his mind as he taught at various times on prayer, persistence in prayer, unabashed boldness in prayer. Nehemiah gives us such, such a great example here of robust prayer, perhaps in contrast to our prayers, which can be quite anemic at times, if we're honest. But Jesus gives us more than just an example of prayer as we get here from Nehemiah, because Jesus himself gives an, an, us an astonishing invitation and open-ended promise about prayer as well. And it comes in Luke chapter 11, 9 to 10, where he says this, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now let me be honest, this is where many preachers like myself feel that they need to just help Jesus out a little bit here, where we, we almost want to say, well, yes, Jesus does say that, but he didn't really mean it the way it comes out. And so we'll point out that these words have to be taken, uh, understood in, in their context, coming right after Jesus' teaching and the Lord's Prayer, so that there are, there are parameters here. And all of that is true. But the way Jesus makes this promise here is such that parameters and cautions and context cannot be what was uppermost in his mind. So that preachers like me need to be very careful that we don't 
dilute Jesus's words here such that we gut them of their meaning. Jesus surely knew what he was doing when he made such unconditional promises. So that six times, in six different ways, Jesus almost begs us to pray and promises that simple asking receives and simple seeking finds and simple knocking opens. And as if that wasn't enough, Jesus doesn't just say it once. He goes through the promises three more times as if to say, this really is the way it works. It really is. The way to receive from the Father is to talk to the Father, is to pray to the Father. And Nehemiah seemed to understand that. As long as we are seeking God to help us in a rebuilding work here at PCKS, we do well to understand it too, because the prerequisite for any and all ministry rebuilding is such prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you on a number of levels for this uh, book of Nehemiah. We thank you for the example of his prayer, but we thank you for how he understood the times that he was in. He, He understood the significance of what the rebuilding of the walls meant because he knew that you had promised a Messiah, a Messiah to come out of your own people, Israel. And so we thank you today for Nehemiah, for his faithfulness to you so that we might be forgiven our sins by our Savior Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.